We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. Tonight, you are, you can open your Bibles, but you're not going to need it. You're probably not going to need it tonight. Now, I don't know that I've ever said that from the pulpit, that you aren't going to need a Bible. But there's a reason you probably don't need a Bible tonight. Doesn't mean you can't turn there. But it's because if you had to pick the one verse of Scripture, if you said somebody was only going to have one Bible verse memorized and it was the only Bible verse they were going to have memorized, if you only knew one, what Bible verse do you imagine that that would be? Here's a hint. It's the one you see at football games every time on a poster. It's John what? We're starting a brand new series tonight, and I'm really excited about it. Um, we're, it's called Written in Red. And over the next several months, all we are going to study together is the words of Jesus. If you have a red-letter Bible, everything that we're going to study is going to be the words that are written in red. And so next week, I'm going to actually bring in and show you some resources um, that I think are really helpful. If that's something that you want to study uh, on your own, um, I'll give you one resource tonight. Um, and I actually was going over to the office to get the books, to bring them over, to show them to you tonight. But it was raining, and I didn't want to get my books wet. So that's why I didn't go get them and bring them over. But if you don't have a copy of a little book, it's called The Harmony of the Gospels. It is a fantastic resource book. In fact, if you're going to study the Gospels, it's just called The Harmony of the Gospels. And if you've ever wondered, if you've been reading one of the Gospels and wondered, hey, I know this is in one of the other four, but I'm not exactly sure where. What the Harmony of the Gospels does, it takes and it puts all of the Gospels in charts or in columns so that if you're seeing it out of Matthew, you can compare it to the passage that is the parallel passage out of Mark. Um, we have three Gospels that are called synoptic. Now, the word synoptic just means same. Because if you look at Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you see some very similar, very similar passages that come out. John's gospel, you see 90% new material or material that is not contained in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But over the next several weeks, what we're going to do is instead of taking this and breaking it down where we are going to start in Matthew and go through every word of Jesus in Matthew, then every word of Jesus in Mark, what we're going to do is break it up um, in more of a subject matter. So for these first few weeks, what we're going to talk about are the things that Jesus said about himself, about what Jesus said about himself, about salvation, and then we're going to branch off and look at some other subjects that Jesus talked about. So if you have a Bible, that will be helpful. The Harmony of the Gospels is, is, is also really, really helpful. If you have a red-letter Bible, I think those can be incredibly helpful as well. The Gospels is not the only place where you will find red letters. If you have a New Testament, there are other places where you will find red letters. In fact, I'll give you that as a homework assignment. Where else in the New Testament will you find red letters in a red letter Bible, words of Jesus that are not recorded in the Gospels? All right, so think, think through that. Right now, you can look that up. Uh, you can find that. That's because we're going to look at some of those passages as well. 
but tonight we are going to, uh, when I thought about breaking up this series, I thought if we're going to talk about the words of Jesus, where do, where do we start? What is the jumping off point? And I don't know that you can start a subject on the words of Jesus without starting with the most famous phrase, the most famous sentence that Jesus ever spoke. It's become uh, something, probably the first verse that we teach our children. It's one that we know well, and it is obviously John 3.16. Um, you know, I put as our big idea today, I was trying to think about when we put that on the screen, um, I got convinced, convicted. One of the reasons I always put a big idea up is it is a waste of your time and a waste of my time if you come and listen to a message, whether that's on a Wednesday night or a Sunday morning, if you come and listen to a message and you leave out of here and somebody says on Sunday afternoon, hey, what was the sermon about today? And you say, I don't know. A lot of times you could ask the preacher that preached it, hey, what was your sermon about? And he would say, I don't know. And the reason for that, I think, is sometimes when we come to it, certainly the biblical exegesis is important, but simply understanding that there is a driving main point that directs us. Now, obviously, we'll have, we have points that come up besides that big idea from time to time, but the big idea is if you're not going to take anything else away, what would you take away? So I thought about John 3.16, and over the course of my life, John 3.16 has to have been the first verse that I learned uh, as a child, and along with it, some very, very important truths come out of music. I don't know why our brains are built this way, but we tend to have the ability to remember music better than anything else. Sometimes we remember songs that you didn't even know you remembered. Um, I've got XM radio in my truck, and so because of that, one of the stations that I have saved on my little XM dial is a station called 90s on 9. That's because I grew, I graduated high school in 1998, so a lot of that music was music from when I was in high school. And I don't listen to music on the radio a lot. I listen to talk radio. Sometimes I listen to absolutely nothing. It's really refreshing. Sometimes I just cut the radio off um, and listen to the sound of my own brain because I love entertaining myself. Um, and, but, but when I do listen to music sometimes, so I turn it on. I, tur I turned it on the other day, and there was a song. And I'm not even going to tell you all the song because it will be embarrassing. But there was a song that came on the radio, and so there's nobody else in the truck, and I don't know the rest of you were probably too cool for this, but I just let what little bit of hair I had down and just let it rip, right? And so I'm just, uh, me, I'm in the F-150 and I'm just jamming. And I realize I don't think I've heard this song in 20 years. I, I bet it's been... 20 years since I heard this song, and I realized word for word I'm singing every single word of this song because somewhere in the deep recesses of our memory, music and songs have a way of sticking where when we try to memorize other things, it's like somebody put Teflon on our brain and nothing seems to stick, but something about music reaches, reaches our heart. So tonight, as we talk about John 3.16, we're going to talk about Two songs that I think most of you in here will know. If you don't know them, that's okay. But I think you will know them. And, and I really think the idea behind John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he did what, church? He gave his only begotten son that 
believeth in him should not, but have what? I told you you wouldn't need your Bible tonight. All right? It's fantastic. Well, if you had to summarize John 3.16, and you had to summarize the Bible, I guess, and I heard this a long, long time ago. Um, I can remember being in a being in my, the first theology, first systematic theology class I ever took, and I was just immersed in it, just fascinated with it. I was I was hearing words and things, and and exposed to ideas I'd never heard before. And so we were given this paper um, that we were supposed to read by this eminent theologian, and it started off um, with a Q and A. And the question that this theologian was asked was, of after 50 years of theological study and teaching theology in a seminary, what would you say is the most amazing biblical truth that you have discovered throughout your life? And this is what he said. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. And I thought about that when I wrote this tonight, and I put that as your big idea. Because really, if you had to boil down the most important thing theologically that you will ever learn, you learned it when you were three. Jesus loves me, this I know. Why? For the Bible tells me so. There's not a better verse that illustrates that than the one that we just said together. For God so loved the world so we're going to talk about tonight, we're going to take just a few minutes tonight on this dreary, cold, rainy Wednesday night, and we're going to spend a little time with the most famous verse in all of Scripture so that maybe the next time you see it plastered somewhere, you see somebody quoting it somewhere, or you drive by a sign out on a country road and it's blasted on the side of the road with repent or perish underneath it, or you see it on a road sign, maybe some of these things will just come out when you break that verse down a little bit and spend a little bit of time just thinking about how awesome what's contained in that verse really is. The 26 words that are the most powerful in all of literature and throughout history because it answers the most important question that someone could ever ask, and it was asked by Nicodemus. John chapter 3, sometimes John 3.16 gets quoted, but it's like a lot of other Bible verses. It's not quoted in context. Like, So where did John 3.16 come from? Jesus is meeting with a teacher of the law by a guy by the name of Nicodemus. And Jesus tells him that you must be born again. And Nicodemus asks a question. How can a man be born again? John 3, 4. How is that supposed to happen? He's talking in the natural, and Jesus is speaking in the spiritual. So Jesus begins to expound on how someone can be born again, how someone can become a new creation in Christ, and he quotes then, obviously, John 3.16. So let's talk about John 3.16. Number one, what are some things that we think about the, the love of God? When we say that Jesus loves me, how does Jesus love us? So we're going to try, just from John 3.16, um, to, to use a little bit of alliteration tonight and define the love of God. Number one, the love of God is immense. Immense. For God so loved what? The world. The world. So when we say that God loved the world, there's a couple of things that we've got to consider. 
We've got to consider that God loved the world in that certainly we could say He loves His creation. But He is talking about specifically that red and yellow, black and white. Y'all remember this song? Jesus what? Love the little children. That, there, that when we say that God loves people, that He loves His children... What we are saying is not only does he love the world in its size. When you think about not only the world population, but you think about all the people that have ever lived, and unless Jesus returns, all the people that ever will live, the love of God being expansive in that way, but the love of God is also expansive in he loves in how big the world is, but he also loves in spite of how bad the world is. And I think that's a that's something that sometimes is missed in John 3.16. And, and the reason I think we need to spend a, just a moment talking about that is, and, and let's, let's be honest, it is not hard for me to love my wife. It's just not. There, there may be some people who are married that, that it's really, really hard. I'm thankful it's not. I'm not saying it's not work, but she is easy to love, and I'm thankful for that. I don't know that she would give you the same testimony, but I'm telling you that, you know, I'm, I'm the lucky one in the deal, like, and I, I'm okay with that. People tell me all the time, you married over your head. Could you imagine what it would have been like if I hadn't? Like, what that woman would be like. I had to marry over my head. I didn't have, cho I didn't have a choice, but it's not hard for me to love her, but one of the reasons for that is because I'd love to tell you it's because I'm so selfless and I'm so wonderful. But part of the reason for that is, is that she makes it easy to love because of some things about her that are wonderful. It's physical beauty, her sense of humor, her intelligence, her heart. Like I can list all these things. So yes, I am loving her. And hopefully there's at least a shred of selflessness in me. But mostly when we look at the human love we have, we are extending that, but we're also getting something back from that as well. Now, certainly when we have children, we're certainly the people we're, we're giving more than we're getting. But one thing I've learned having children is it, when you, before I had them, I thought, well, this is, would be obvious that they are going to get more out of this relationship than I am because I'm the one providing everything and giving everything. But one of the things I've learned having them is they're really not that hard to love either. Now, let me tell you what I mean by that. Please don't walk out of here and oh, Brother Larry said his kids aren't, aren't even, no, they're, they're kids, all right? And sometimes I want to kill them, all right? And they do really dumb things. And they're 13 and 14 years old. And that comes with its own set, set of challenges. So that's not what I'm telling you. But I'm telling you that because they are my kids, there is something that comes with that that is, if, I don't even know how to describe it. I don't know that any of you know how to describe it. There's something that, that you get back from that because they are yours that is so incredible that even though you are expending love, you see the value in that as well. But when we talk about the immense, how immense God's love is, it's not only the size of the world, but it is that he is loving something that is so unlovable in its very core. It's not that when we look down at something and, and say, oh, that's so wonderful or that's so beautiful, I'm going to choose to love it. 
God in His holiness and righteousness and perfection does not love because we are beautiful and wonderful, but in spite of the fact that we're not. So that's immense, the love of God. But number two, number two, and if you're not a huge fan of alliteration, you may say, well, some of these seem a little forced. That's okay. Maybe they're at least a little memorable. So the love of God is immense, but number two, it's invaluable. It's invaluable. He gave. He gave. So that is a gift. You can't, he gave a gift. Um, I, I thought it was really, um, I saw an English assignment a couple of years ago that one of my kids brought home, and I thought it was, it was around Christmas time. I thought this was a really good essay assignment. It simply said, please in one page describe the best gift you've ever received. Now, obviously we're in church, and, and you know I'm going to spiritualize that in just a moment. But first for just the sake of fun tonight, I want you to think back on your life and I want you to just, a, a physical gift, an actual present that you were given. Can you look back on your life and say, you know, when I think back on it, I remember getting X and it just being incredible. Like it just, it, 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 it blew my mind. Do you, you probably were a child when you got this gift, I'm guessing. Because something about it, something changes as we get older. And, and we don't have the sense of awe and the sense of wonder that we do as children. But I wonder, most people in here can, th can think of one or two things that right now when I ask that question, you're like, oh yeah, I remember that day. I, I, I remember that, that vehicle. Or, 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 or I, remember, I remember that day that, that, that I got that 22 rifle. Or I remember that day, I'll tell you what mine, I'll tell you this, that no doubt. I, I can remember it like, like yesterday. I went, um, I was eight, and went um, down south of Hattiesburg. They had this big Boy Scout expedition when, when the Boy Scouts just allowed boys. And so we went, and, and we went to this big Boy Scout expedition. And down there, they brought in a, a group of police officers, and the police officers brought their dogs with them, and they put on an entire display of what uh, what these German shepherds could do. I mean, they sniffed out drugs. They showed us their obedience commands. They put a guy in a suit and had this dog attack this guy. And I was, comp I mean, just blown away. And I don't know if you have ever, any of you have, have what I'll call persistent children. Do any of you have that child, a, a persistent child? I, I would definitely have been categorized in the persistent variety. And nothing would do in this world, but I had to have a German Shepherd. Like, it was the, uh, I wasn't going to, it just, I mean, it was going to be like Ren 1010 and Lassie and everything else that you could imagine. Me and this, it was going to be me and this dog against the world. You know, it's kind of going to be like a red fern grows if you've read that kind of thing. Like, I just, I just knew, so I start begging my parents, begging my parents. And so, so my, my mother because everything had to be a lesson growing up. Like, and I, I see some value in that. I mean, that, that, but everything had to be a lesson growing up. Well, do you think you're responsible enough to hand, handle a dog? That's a dumb question to ask an eight-year-old. Yes, they think they're responsible enough to handle a dog, whether they're not. Or, so, so I start getting this list of chores, and, and so the list of chores was put on the refrigerator, and you had to go, and after you did the chore, you had to go put a check mark by the chore because I had to prove to my parents that I could, you know, that I would feed the dog and take the dog outside and clean up after the dog and 
do everything that I was supposed to do with this dog. So over and over and over again, I, I do this. So it never comes back up. I kept asking, when are we going to get this dog? When are we going to get this dog? We're going to see. We're going to see. We're going to see. My parents kept secrets better than I'm able to. I know that. Like, uh, I get too excited when I've got something for my kids. Like, I can't, like, when Christmas comes around, I can't stand it because I can't, I, if I buy something, I want to give it to you, like, the next day. I get real excited. But my parents were good. I mean, they could, you know, hold the poker face real well. They did all of that. And I can remember being at my grandmother's house on Dearborn Street in Hattiesburg, and I was sitting in her den, and my, my dad walked through the back door, and I didn't know what he was was doing but he had his hand he had his hand behind his back and when he pulled his hand out behind behind his back there was it was it was I was eight years old it was June the first I was going to turn nine in two months if you I'm I'm telling you I remember he pulled out this this German shepherd that was five weeks old they'd had to wean it early because the people were moving and gave and they gave me this German shepherd and to this day I don't know that I'll ever get a physical present that that I will have been as excited about as I was that dog. We had him for 11 years. His name was Champ. I wish I still had him. Did some of you have ever had any of you look back on your life and had that dog? I wish I still had that dog. And so I tell you that story to tell you this. That probably looking back on my life, I don't know that there'll ever be a physical presence somebody gives me. But when we think about John 3, 16, that God so loved the world that he gave. What an invaluable gift when you think about the value of his son. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said. From creation to fall, to the rise of Israel, to the sending of Jesus to be killed, what more could he have done? The question is not why is there only one way to God, but why is there even one way? The good news is that the snake-bitten people infected by a poison that goes to the depth of their souls can look to the cross and find salvation. What a gift. But the gift is not only invaluable, but we could say also that the gift is incomparable. That God gave his one and only son, right? When we say one and only, that means... There is nothing else like it. That there is not another one in the world like it. We were in Guatemala on a mission trip, and one of the days we had gone into this city um, and into this town, and Guatemala is known for jade mines. A lot of people, when they go to Guatemala, uh, the green jade. People come back with all kinds of jade when they go to Guatemala. So we go into this refinery, I guess, where, where they actually took the jade that was raw in mind and it was polished and you could actually watch the process of how it was done. And so we're in there and I'm, I'm watching all of this and, and the lady that's describing this jade was talking about how every single piece that you buy, even if it is crafted in the same shape, that none of it is exactly the same, that it is all specific, that it is all different, that it is all not there's not one that is like any other. It was her sales pitch to say, if you buy one of these, you are going to have the only one of those in the world because there's not, not another one that can be exactly like this. She didn't sell me. I walked out of there. I didn't buy nothing. All right? But I understood what she was doing. When we think about 
the fact that when we say that Jesus is the one and only, that means there's not another. He stands as the only one. A.W. Tozer said this, You mean something to God. At our deepest core, through the facade of confidence, there is a loneliness and lostness that plagues our hearts with the wonder if anyone really cares about us. Do we really matter? Satan's biggest and greatest lie, you don't really matter to God. It's not just masses, stats, numbers, but individuals. He knows your name. There are no nobodies. You may be a hell-bound sinner, but you won't go to hell without somebody caring about you. If the truth is first, did not exist, then some of our behavior and attitude would make perfect sense. Complacency, despair, living so often like it doesn't matter when it really does. It's a devilish poison. We become sedated with apathy. Single yourself, single yourself out and let the gravity of it overwhelm you. When he says single yourself out, if you were to say, for God so loved me. For God so loved, put your name in the blank, that he gave his only begotten or one and only son that whosoever, not only is it incomparable, but number four, it's also inviting. Inviting. Any of you, <clears throat> any of you remember, remember the old hymn? Whosoever surely what? meaneth me. Whosoever surely meaneth me. Now, <clears throat> there is so much, and I think some of, it's, some of it's profitable, some of it's comical, but there is so much ridiculous debate so, so often in evangelical, Protestant, Baptist circles about Reformed theology, predestination, election, the sovereignty of God, however those things, how does that fit in with the free will of man? That God's electing grace, God's unmerited favor being given to people and calling them unto salvation, that you cannot come unless you are called, that you, would not, you cannot choose God unless God chooses you, that God loved you first before you ever loved Him. All those things are obvious. But the Bible also says that God loved the world and that whosoever should come. So we get ourselves all in an uproar about whether or not it is that God chooses people or whether or not people choose God. Let me help you out. God chose you. Then and only then were you able to choose God. Is there a... Is God's sovereignty absolutely biblical? Yes. Does God predestine? Yes. Does God elect? Yes. Is man's free will absolutely essential? Yes. Whosoever surely meaneth me. I had someone ask me one time as we were walking through Romans. When you get to Romans 9, it's obvious that God obviously has sovereign choice. And I had someone ask me once, say, well, how can I know whether or not God has chosen me? 
I said, here's how you know the fact that you asked that question means you care. And you would not care if God hadn't chosen you. You would care less about the things of God if the Holy Spirit hadn't already placed in your life a desire for the things of God. And the reason I know that is the Bible tells me that you're wretched. The Bible tells me that there's nothing good in you, that you have no capacity to choose anything good unless the Holy Spirit first did that in your life. So I truly believe that inside the church of God, we need to be a church that where the Bible teaches that the electing, predestining, sovereign, choosing work of God is that biblical 100%. But do we also need to, choose, to preach that whosoever can call on the name of the Lord, that they must call on the name of the Lord? Yes, we must preach that as well. And so you say, well, Larry, I need you to reconcile all of that. You're the pastor here. You're supposed to be the resident theologian. So would you just take that and clean that up a bit for me? I want you to take that and make that fit perfectly so that I can wrap my mind around it. Y'all have hired the wrong man. And let me tell you why. I heard a, a man much brighter than I. I think higher IQ than I, than I have loved Jesus more than I think. I love Jesus, a greater scholar and better studied, was once asked a similar question. And he said, I will explain that to you if you will explain something to me first. And the questioner said, okay, what's that? He said, I'd like for you to explain to me how God made a rabbit. Now that may seem like a silly question, but at what point do we not accept by faith that the ways of God are mysterious in ways that we have to, in faith, trust Him, believing what the Bible teaches, and also understanding that if God always fit into a neat theological box, He wouldn't be a God of the Bible. He would be an idol of your own making. I am increasingly okay with a God who is bigger than me. And I think that's what we need to understand when we talk about that he is inviting to whosoever, that even the worst of sinners and one of the only and that anyone can come and that they can be saved. Um, there are people that doubt that all the time. I had a conversation very recently and they just kept saying you ever, you ever realize you're, not, you're just not getting through to someone? Drives me crazy. I'm supposed to be able to communicate. I mean, it really bothers me when I feel like, and I'm not, when I feel like I've done an excellent job of explaining something and somebody doesn't get it, it drives me nuts. Like, I, because I, I'll come up with multiple ways. Like, how do we explain? How can I do this? How can I explain this? And I'm having this conversation, and over and over and over again, this individual kept saying, there's just no way that God could possibly save me. I've, I've done untold things. I've, 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 I've been extended His grace 
all my life. I've spit upon it. Basically, there's, there is no way that I could be saved. So we talked about the love of God. We talked about the cross. We talked about salvation. We talked about grace. We talked about resurrection. We talked about the thief on the cross. We talked about that Paul of all was the worst of sinners in the Damascus Road. All of that. And all through it, at the, at the end of that, I thought, I have done everything I know to do to try to urge this person that they can be saved. And after all of that, looked at me and said, I just don't think, I, not, not me. And finally something clicked. I said, I don't, I don't know that this is going to work. And this is not a tactic I have tried very often. But I'm just going to tell you on this day, the Lord put on my heart, I looked at them and said, well, I think you're going to need to leave my office because you've called my God a liar one too many times. And it got real quiet. I realized that a lot of people, the reason they don't think they can be saved is because they are placing their faith in themselves to be good enough to be able to be saved when God has said, no matter how rotten you are, and we are all rotten, that His grace is sufficient for you. So it's not about believing that you're good enough to be saved. It's about believing the gospel. And you believe in the resurrection and you believe in the blood of Christ. And I have never said that to anybody in my life, ever. I've never taken that tactic. But do you know, finally, when I said that, if you're going to continue to call my God a liar and not believe that he's powerful enough to save you, then you're going to need to leave my office because I don't think that we're going to continue to call him a liar in this place together. I saw something break immediately. And all of a sudden, I realized that what happened was, instead of thinking about me and my faith and my ability and my goodness, all of a sudden, there was a conviction of, by not believing this, it's not some act of super humility. I'm insulting a sovereign God because either he can save me or he cannot. So when we say that God's love is, when we say that God's love is inviting um, I think we need to be very careful about the, the very next sentence that I want to talk about with John 3.16, that when we say whosoever can come, we need to be careful that we have a balance between explaining to people that there is a real place called hell that real people go and that people want to be rescued from that eternal destiny which will be a reality for the lost. And exalting the beauty of Christ so that yes, people do want to run from hell, but more than they want to run from hell, they want to run to Christ. All right? I have a... We're going to be talking more about this in the months to come. But I think one of the reasons that there's a lot of Southern Baptists that are going to go to hell, and notice I said Southern Baptist, is because... We have told people for years that they were saved that aren't saved. And let me explain to you how we have done that. Because I, I, I've been Southern Baptist my whole life. I know how to do this. It kind of scares me how well I could do this if I wanted to do this. So bear with me. Because this is what a lot of VBSs look like. We get to the Friday of VBS. We bring in that dynamo 
we go find that speaker. We go get somebody and we turn the lights down low and we work the kids up into a frenzy and we've had them all week long. And then someone comes up and maybe they do share the gospel and maybe it really is the true gospel. But then we ask a question like this. How many of you in here today don't want to go to hell? Just raise your hand. Just raise your hand. Bow your heads and close your eyes and raise your hands, right? And then what do we say? Now with nobody looking around, it's just nobody's looking around, but you've raised your hand. And I want you to know today that because you've raised your hand, that God is going to save you. So if you would, just repeat this prayer after me. Dear Jesus, I know that I'm a sinner. I believe that you died on the cross and that you rose again. I'm asking you to forgive me of my sin and I'm asking you to come into my heart. Now, if you just prayed that prayer, I want you to know you're saved. But before you get out of here, we want to get a little information on you. So we just want you to sign a little card. And at the bottom, there's going to be a check box. And if you got saved today, I want you to check that box. And 73 kids checked the box that they didn't want to go to hell. And they, pre and they said a prayer behind the pastor. And then one day when they're 27 years old, and they're in the pit of the darkness of their soul, they haven't trusted Jesus They've trusted some experience and they've trusted checking a box and they've trusted a card and they've trusted a church membership and they may have even trusted a baptism, but they may never have trusted Jesus. And when we talk about that the love of God truly is inviting, we need to understand that we are inviting people not to checking a box, not to simply praying a prayer, not to even getting baptized, not just to church membership, but we are inviting them to take up their cross and follow Christ so that one day you don't look back and say, well, have you ever been saved? Well, yeah, I went to D-Now and we had a big, big weekend. We had a big weekend and a bunch of us went down and they prayed for us down there. That's not what I ask you. I ask you, have you ever trusted Christ with your life? Have you given your life to Christ in a way that He is the Lord of your life and He has taken away your sin and He is important to you and you love Him because He is precious? There is a difference in the false gospel that has been peddled in some places and the true gospel of saying, you know what? Salvation is not walking an aisle. Salvation is not praying just a prayer. Salvation is not checking a card. Salvation is not baptism. Salvation is finding life in Christ because you've trusted Him. There is a large difference in understanding that we are coming because we are being invited by Christ. And then number five, that we would have what? Eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. I've shared this with you guys before. Um, I, think kids are, I think kids are my absolute favorite to talk to about theological things 
because they come to you with true wonder and they don't come to you with arrogance. And what I mean by that is sometimes, sometimes adults want to prove to you that they know something by the questions that they ask. Like, I want you to kind of know, I know a little something about this, so I'm going to ask this question. You don't find there's no pretense in a child. A, a child has a legit question. They just want to know, they just want to know the answer. And I have figured out from children that you will be humbled. You will be humbled by the theological question of a child. And I, I will never forget this. Her name was Anna Catherine. She was five years old, long blonde hair, blue eyes. I had, become, I had been the pastor at seminary for about two months and thought I was some kind of theological genius. And her mom called me and says, Anna Catherine's been having some questions and I can't answer them. So I told him, you're going to need to, you're going to, need to talk to Brother Larry. And so I said, well, that's fine. And I thought, oh, well, this won't be any problem at all. <laughs> I am theologically educated, experienced. I am a pastor. I will have no problem with this. Uh, and so this little girl, she said, her mama said, we'll talk to Brother Larry at church. She said, I don't want to talk to Brother Larry at church. I want to go see him today. Like, I don't I want to make an appointment. So they made an appointment. And Anna Catherine came. And I welcomed Anna Catherine in. And this is what I, I'd known her. I, I literally had, she was, I think, one when I came here. So I had known her since before she could talk. And so I sat down and I came around like my desk and I sat in the chair. And so she walked in and you all have known children like this. Very preco precocious, very bright cute little girl. So I sit down in the chair and I'm expecting her to go sit down. You know, I've got a chair that's pulled up beside me. She forewent the chair and crawled into my lap. Like, forewent the chair and crawled into my lap. She said, really, I got some questions and my mama does not know. And I said, <laughs> I said, okay, Anna Catherine. I said, well, what, what, what is it, baby girl? What, what's, what's on your mind? <sighs> Big breath. She said, I cannot figure out where God came from. I said, where God came from? I said, all right. No problem. So I said, God is eternal. He has always been. By the way, that's a right answer. I mean, I'm, theologically, I'm correct. And she said, okay, and like, she said, okay, who was God's daddy? And I'm starting to realize how good these questions are. She has a daddy. Her daddy had a daddy. Everything that she knows had a beginning. So she's trying to figure out how do you get to the beginning? Where was the start? So I tell her God doesn't have a daddy that God always has been. There never was a time where God wasn't, which by the way is theologically accurate. She looked at me. She said, huh, that's what my mama said, <laughs> which I knew was not, must not be the answer you're looking for because your mama called me because you didn't understand that answer, so you had to come see the expert. Now the expert's giving you the same answer your mama gave you. And I thought about it for a minute, and I thought, well, you dense little girl, why are you having so much trouble with this? And I realized something. I don't understand that either. 
that there's something that never started. It just always has been. And if you think you understand that, you probably aren't putting enough thought into it because there's nothing in our lives like that. There is nothing that doesn't have a beginning. Everything has a beginning. So when we say eternal life, I don't think we can possibly appreciate something that doesn't have an end. That we're going to forever, when 10,000 times 10,000 years have passed, that we're still going to be with Christ. I don't know that that's something that we can fully appreciate because I don't know that we comprehend it. And after that conversation, you ever have, a, maybe in your work, you ever have something, you go, well, that didn't go near as well as I thought that was going to go. I kind of sat in my office for a second after she left, and it scared me. Not She didn't scare me. She's a sweetheart. But it bothered me that I thought, well, I've been doing this two months, and I just got stumped by a five-year-old. Totally, like, and, and I, when I say stumped, I, I knew the answer, but I wasn't able to explain it to her satisfaction. And that really bothered me. Like I, 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 Lord, I, I don't, and so I start thinking I don't want her to lose her faith one day because her preacher didn't explain this right. And I kept thinking and thinking, and I kept thinking, all right, I'm going to come up with a better way. I'm going to go to her house. I'm going to come up with a better way to explain this. And do you know what? That's been over 20 years ago, and I don't have a better way to explain it. And the reason is, is because of the majesty and the mystery of eternity. And we say eternal life, that God is going to not only love us now, but he is going to love you forever. And if you are redeemed and born again, you can love him forever. So, and I'm, I hope you will not hear this as sacrilege when I ask it, but I couldn't help but think of a question asked by another great theologian by the name of Tina Turner. What's love got to do with it? Right? What's love got to do with it? Absolutely everything. Everything. So, I guess... Oh, goodness. Working on 18 years, been eight, 18 years as your pastor, and who knows, maybe the Lord, if he gives us a long life, doesn't return. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I, I hope I'm one of those dudes that gets to just be at the same place for 40 years. That, that's fantastic. But I, I was praying for you this week and praying that as we talk about a verse, because some of the verses that make me the most nervous to preach are the most familiar. I actually feel more comfortable preaching obscure passages, things that, you know, maybe people hadn't read or studied, but John 3, 16, everybody's familiar with. And I thought, Lord, as we study this tonight, help us to, to really maybe freshly look at this. And as I thought about that, I kind of came back and I said, you know what? I got tickled about this. When I, when I'm dead and gone, if the Lord hadn't come back first and I'm nothing but a memory or a you know, somebody looks back a hundred years from now and says, yeah, that, we had that bald guy forever. Um, so, and somebody would say, what did, you know, what did he teach y'all? You know, what, what was kind of, what was his, the driving force of, you know, kind of his whole time? Like, what, what, what would you have left him with? And I think I'd be real happy, like real happy with my legacy if after I was dead and gone, people would say, well, you know, I guess the biggest thing I remember is that he really taught us that 
Jesus loves us, and this we know, for the Bible tells us so. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that that truth, oh, it's never changed. I thank you that somebody loved me enough when I was three to teach me to sing that song. God, I'm ashamed that at times in my life I think I've gotten too big for that truth when I haven't even scratched the surface of how beautiful that is. So, God, I pray that John 3.16 would resonate in our hearts both now and always as we think about the beauty of a God who loves us more than we can comprehend. So, God, may your love for us cause us to continually fall more in love with you. And, Lord, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to FBC Summit. We are leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. For more information, visit our website, fbcsummit.org.